My name is Richard Bronk, and I'm a visiting fellow here at the LSE and chair of this event. Now, before I introduce our three distinguished panellists, we thought it might be helpful if I spent a few minutes sketching out a framework for the discussion. It's often remarked that the British are a nation of gardeners, and certainly when I was a child in the 60s, some 80% of households had a garden. And in subsequent decades, the presenters of Gardener's World, Percy Thrower, Jeff Hamilton, Alan Titchmarsh, and Monty Don, became household names. What's more, at least since Shakespeare wrote of this sceptered isle, this precious stone set in a silver sea, and Blake of England's green and pleasant land, landscape has been central to this nation's imaginative conception of itself. In this discussion, we'll explore how far gardening has become a utopian exercise and how far landscape is a co-creation of physical features and our imaginative perspective. When I think back to my grandfather, a farmer's son in his well-kept garden, he certainly took a pride in the quality of his potato crop, the juiciness and aroma of his tomatoes, the luxuriance of his dahlia blooms. His gardening was not, in any obvious way, a utopian or an imaginative exercise, but rather a practical and productive hobby requiring great skill. By contrast, when you think of how many of us approach gardening, we do seem to be engaged in an imaginative attempt to create a mini-paradise of flowers and vistas and express our identities in the spaces we create. And when it comes to the landscapes that many of us walk in at weekends... We use them and the memory of them, like Wordsworth in Tintern Abbey, to help restore ourselves spiritually amid the din of towns and cities. The Bible, of course, sees paradise as a garden, the Garden of Eden. And at least one famous set of gardens, Hestacum in Somerset, is today marketed as paradise restored. But of course, many of the backyards attached to our houses are far from mini paradises. They're much more utilitarian affairs. Similarly, while we may class the soaring cliffs and rolling hills of Dorset or the hills of the Lake District as landscapes, society tends to class the brownfield sites and fallow fields of much of England as development land. Now, I'm a historian of ideas, and when I was asked to chair this session, it occurred to me that the questions we're discussing today relate closely to the two cultures divide that's been a central feature of European thought for more than two centuries the divide between utilitarianism and romanticism, between calculating rationality and creative imagination, between grounded common sense and spiritual feeling or idealism. The 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill famously saw Bentham, the arch-rationist and utilitarian, and the romantic poet and philosopher Coleridge as two sides of the truth. And Mill dedicated his life to trying to bridge the chasm between their two cultures. And I want to set our discussion going today with the contentious suggestion that the British approach to gardening and landscape is a perfect example of such a union of utility and romance, of rational order and wild imagination. Mill famously argued that solitude in the presence of natural beauty and grandeur is the cradle of socially beneficial thoughts. And he feared the approach of a world with every hedgerow and superfluous tree rooted out in the name of improved agriculture. In fact, though, hedgerows are good examples of features of the English landscape that combine utility, windbreak and partition, 
with what Wordsworth called sportive wood run wild, part of our picture of how countryside ought to look. And it seems to me that many of the gardens and landscapes we love are a union of imposed order and untamable nature, of rational planning and imaginative creativity or perspective. Now, to discuss how far our relationships with our gardens and landscapes are prosaic or utopian, utilitarian or imaginative, we're joined by three speakers superbly qualified to talk on this subject. Anna Pavord has for many years been gardening correspondent of The Independent and lives in the beautiful West Dorset. She's author of the best-selling book The Tulip and as well as The Curious Gardener and most recently Landscaping. Dan Pearson has designed no fewer than five award-winning gardens for the Chelsea Flower Show, winning the gold medal in 2015. His books include Spirit, Garden Inspiration, and Home Ground, Sanctuary in the City. Dan is currently working on the planting of the proposed garden bridge over the Thames. Margaret Wills is an enthusiastic gardener and former publisher at the National Trust. She's author of The Making of the English Gardener, and most recently, the fascinating The Gardens of the British Working Class. Now, the running order for this discussion is that each speaker will speak for up to 15 minutes. We will then have at least 30 minutes of question and answer with you, the audience. So if you have any questions, and I hope that you will, please save them up for then when there will be a roving microphone. We're hoping to podcast this event, so if you please put your phones on silent but you are invited, indeed encouraged, to tweet on hashtag LSE LitFest. So without further ado, let me ask, please, Anna Pavord to come and speak. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I've got over the first hurdle. I haven't slipped over walking to the podium. I don't know what it is. It's that journey, and it's never a long one, from the chair to the podium that seems full of all sorts of extraordinary hazards for me. Uh, The best, in many ways, being in America, when uh, I turned round, somebody had asked something about a picture on the screen, and I fell off the platform entirely into the embrace of a very large vase of magnolia. Uh, uh, Only in America do they cut magnolia branches. That was another great wonder to me. So, anyway, here I am um, to talk about, uh, as you've heard from Richard, uh, the sort of utopian angle to landscapes and gardens. And I'm actually going to talk to you briefly about Hafod. Now, I'm sure um, you garden historians uh, will understand all about Hafod, but perhaps there'll be some that don't. So this is an extraordinary place into which a man called Thomas Jones, born in 1748, brought his life, his love, and three inherited fortunes. (laughs) It was created from nothing in uh, the wooded hills of Carnarvonshire, and it quickly became this extraordinary object of pilgrimage. It became the place where, if you had any sort of sensitivity and understanding of the picturesque, you had to go. It was a wonder. It was a microcosm of the picturesque ideal. Now, Jones is actually one of the heroes of this book that Richard mentioned, Landskipping. And... This is actually a book that considers different ways of viewing the view and how different imperatives produce different ways of looking at the landscape. And I've concentrated on three main themes. 
Prospects and Painters actually looks at that first exodus of the great landscape artists such as Richard Wilson called the father of uh, the landscape painting in this country. And they responded to the view, of course, in a very particular way. And then there's Prospects and the Plough, which actually looks at a different band of men, the agriculturalists, who at exactly the same time, which is what so fascinated me, went out in the sort of spirit of agrarian reform and looked at the landscape, not just for its beauty, but for how it could be made more productive. And then the final bit looks at prospects and place, which again looks at why we are hefted to particular places, why particular places call out to us where we know that we cannot be in places where we don't feel comfortable, where the landscape is not nurturing, looking after us. And Jones actually is a fulcrum between the first part and the second part. Now, Jones provides this link because his vision was always of Hafod as a place that would be as productive as it was beautiful. He'd been brought up in great comfort and luxury at Croft Castle in Herefordshire. But his family had always had estates, lands, and connections, family connections, down in Cardiganshire. But nobody for generations had actually bothered about these estates. Why would you, when you had gorgeous, rich, red-earthed Herefordshire around you, why would you bother to go down to Cardiganshire? Absolutely the end of the world, as far as anybody in Herefordshire would, uh, would, would, be, would, would consider. But actually, he went, when he was still young, to visit Hafford, and he was completely caught by its extraordinary beauty. There was the river Istwith, thundering in a wildly exhilarating way through the valley. It was untamed. It was awe-inspiring. And it was his. Anyway, he decided to make Hafod his home. And at 32, he needed a project. And perhaps also he was envious of what his cousin, Richard Payne Knight, had achieved at Downton, where he'd built this extraordinary picturesque castle. And at Foxley, a great friend of his, Uvedale Price, was intent on creating also this sort of heaven on earth this utopian dream of a garden. And he was ornamenting Foxley in this style, this picturesque style, which was just the thing at this particular time. So, Jones began his work by enclosing eight acres of this Cardiganshire estate with a big stone wall. Eight acres with a stone wall around it. That is a big wall. But he brought in these miners from Ispiti Istwith to blow up inconvenient boulders to actually provide him with good building stone. And so in little more than five years, he had actually walled in this area and he had what he considered a safe place to start ornamenting. And in those five years, while the Great Wall was being built, he planted 2,065,000 trees on that land. He planted larch and ash and birch, 10,000 oak, rowans, alders, beech and firs. Now, when the family finally moved into uh, this newly created estate, uh, into this wonderful sort of fantasy Gothic house, built from nothing, 
Jones then began to lay out these picturesque walks, taking in a cold bath, natural caves, unnatural grottos, without or with uh, hermits. He doesn't seem to have employed a hermit, which was actually quite a thing to do at that time. But he did have a druid temple. So quite a few of those sort of hallmarks of the picturesque were stitched in to the map that began to emerge of this extraordinary place. And encouraged by Uvedale Price and a very influential essay of that time, uh, Essays on the Picturesque, Jones very enthusiastically embraced this notion of actually creating landscape pictures. A correctly educated landscaper knew how to help the landscape along to make it more correctly picturesque. Gilpin was very strong on what was correct and what wasn't. Gilpin is not a hero of my book. He was far too strict in laying his own hand on things that actually didn't need it. But that was not the case with Jones at Hafford. He just added enough to make people realise that what they were looking at was not still just a completely untamed landscape. And, of course, the correctly educated traveller knew how he ought to look. So those two parts of the equation both needed uh, to be there for the whole excitement to work. And visitors poured in to Hafford, so many that actually Jones built the Hafford Arms near Devil's Bridge to take in all these tourists. And uh, the publican who looked after the Hafford Arms sold you your ticket to go around the garden. So garden visiting, well, as we know from Jane Austen also, is not just a modern thing. People were longing to see what was going on there in Cardiffmanshire. And the tour included the celebrated cavern cascade at Hafford, waterfalls, blasted trees, carefully organised to hang out over ravines in a very terrifying way, and a slightly suspiciously Swiss-looking wooden bridge going over the chasm. But writers were completely entranced with the place. No language can image out the sublimity of the scenes wrote the poet George Cumberland, which, without quite arriving at a sentiment of aversion, produces in the impassioned soul all those thrilling sensations of terror which ever arise from majestical yet gloomy exhibitions. So, yes, we're supposed to feel frightened, but not too frightened. We know the Hafford Arms is waiting with a fire and a good meal that night, and that we can actually get out of the terror and the aversion any time we want. So, Jones poured those three inherited fortunes into this place, and the money travelled only in one direction. His estate, he declared, should be a model community where contented tenants farmed the land in a model and modern and most uh, sort of improved way. Improvement was very much the thing just then. And actually, Jones invited a very important agrarian reformer, this was Dr. James Anderson, to come down and advise on ways that he could farm the land more efficiently. So having got the beauty, the picturesqueness into the place, he now wanted to turn his hand to making it productive as well. 
And it was actually at that time really important for landowners to be seen to be au fait with all the latest practices, as it was for them to be able to lay out their grounds in the latest style. Jones had created woods where there had been no woods, where there had been bare moorland, and they looked very beautiful. But he couldn't escape from this reflection that the gratification of the eye was purchased at too high a price by excluding the operation of the plough and the scythe. Now, he had always boasted that he could actually turn Hafford into an estate that paid its way. And Anderson, a Scot, thought that it had potential. But bringing Jones's tenants round to his point of view was a very much more complex proposition. They and their families had been scratching a living from this terrible land for generations before any of its so-called owners actually turned up to look at the place. They had actually been feeding themselves off this poor land for generations before Jones arrived with his rosy visions. They had no reserves to fall back on if things went wrong. It was safer all round to stick to what they knew. Now, the wheeled cart was actually at this stage only just beginning to replace the cart loose, which was a sort of wooden sledge that uh, the people who lived and farmed in in these areas found easier to get over the ground than a wheeled cart. It was a very familiar sight all over the hillier parts of Wales. And the Welsh plough was described by one of these agrarian reformers as perhaps the most awkward, unmeaning tool to be found in any civilised country. It is not calculated to cut a furrow, but to tear it open by main force. But the indigenous Welsh farmers were extremely attached to their ploughs. They knew that they did the job. They were suspicious of strangers, especially strangers that were constantly telling them what to do. They had no money. So they farmed with what they'd got. They carted seaweed up to lay on their ground. They didn't buy in manures. They didn't buy in lime. They hadn't actually got the money. And one of their really big problems was the fact that they were so far away from any decent markets. You could get butter and cheese to Bristol on a pony, but it took several days, and the weather couldn't be warm. And also, you could get your cattle out but they had to be taken by the drovers on immensely long journeys down to the fairs in Kent and Sussex, and many of the animals died on the way. Now, Jones built a model dairy at Hafford, and he produced tons of cheese there. He made parmesan, he made stilton, as well as the more familiar cheddars. But even he, with all his contacts, couldn't find a market for his cheeses, couldn't get them out of the place. He ended up just giving them to his tenants. But he never stopped trying to bring about that vision of a place that was as productive as it was beautiful, a place equally praised for its agriculture as for its its picturesque surroundings. He was one of the founders of a local society for the encouragement of agriculture and industry. He built model milking parlours and model stables, and he invited his tenants to come and see how animals should be properly housed, But those few tenants that turned up, probably for the free beer, he never quite seemed to grasp the irony of the fact that they weren't housed in places that were as good as these stables and these milking parlours that he had built for his animals. 
So, Jones had the resources, though, to persuade himself that, you know, he could do all these things, he could drain the boggy land, he had the cash to buy lime, which his tenants didn't. But if he'd ever actually sat down to calculate the real financial cost of the corn and the potatoes that he was getting off this land, it just might have occurred to him that, of course, none of his tenants could do it. They just hadn't got the resources. But anyway, his own example was obviously not proving enough to turn the tenants round to his way of thinking. So actually, uh, he brought down some what he called indigenous families from Scotland to show what thrift and hard work might do, and he housed them in some spare farms on his estate. He had great regard for the Scots, but then many people did at this time. If you think of uh, the great uh, plant hunters, if you think of the great head gardeners of the time, uh, so many of them were Scots. Now, his head forester, uh, John Greenshields, had actually been brought down from Scotland, and his, his head gardener, James Todd, came to Halford from the Botanic Garden at Edinburgh. So already the sort of Scottish influence uh, was pervading the place. And from the north of England, he brought down an expert plowman with an expert plow to actually show uh, just how much easier their lives could be. But the Cardiganshire farmers remained deeply unimpressed. Jones turned to his pen. He produced a Cardiganshire landlord's advice uh, to his tenants, and he distributed copies free with the Welsh translation. He wrote in it, I intend having your farms inspected and giving to those who have managed their farms in the best manner such implements of husbandry as may encourage them to proceed in so praiseworthy a track. He was like a parent trying to persuade a child that greens were good for it. But there were cash prizes, there were gold medals uh, for the tenants who followed this advice. And... uh, Unfortunately, despite Dr. Anderson's guiding hand, Hafford refused to actually release that profit which somehow Jones had always hoped for. And and Anderson was fascinated by Jones. He said, Anderson this is, said, he talks of Hafford as a paradise and of his improvements with rapture as if he had never met with a single disappointment in his life. Now, only his trees did well, especially the larch, which isn't surprising, well-suited to life on those damp, cold, exposed flanks of the hills. They went in the end, but not until after Jones, heartbroken at the loss of his only child, had actually died in April 1816. Hafford's extraordinary renown, its reputation as the pinnacle of picturesque beauty, had lasted for no more than 25 years. No one ever again cared about it as much as Jones, its passionate its creator. And in September 1832, creditors, who included Jones's wine merchant, forced the sale of the estate together with all its contents. And Hafford, which for a very short period in the early 19th century had been thought of as this earthly paradise, and Eden was knocked down for £70,000 to the Duke of Newcastle, who never went there. The last owner, Mr Waddingham, walked out in the 1930s, and in 1956, 
the house was blown up. But the setting remains. The hills, the streams, the rushing river. And in the undergrowth hover the remains of Jones's serpentine walks, whispering of their ghosts. Thank you. It's always a, a nasty moment. Um, and uh, I just wanted to um, talk to you today about my own uh, personal experience with the concept of oasis and sanctuary. Um, and it started early with me. Um, is it possible to turn the lights down a little bit? Thank you. Um, with a, a discovery of gardening, which... Uh, probably happened uh, around uh, five or six. And um, it was a very simple thing. Uh, the first step was that I started making these little houses for my trolls, which were my companions at that point. And uh, they were three bricks with a slate on top. And I then started making these little roof gardens, which then quite quickly became much more interesting than the actual trolls themselves. And um, at about that point in the uh, early 70s, um, my father dug a pond in the top of our garden. This is a picture of that pond. And I just remember that incredible excitement that went with this six-by-four-foot hole that was being dug in the ground and the catalogue with the uh, numbered plants, uh, water lilies that had a little code beside them. And I started to imagine all these things that were going to go into this water And the plants arrived at the beginning of the summer and we put them into what was then clear water with a blue liner and I spent my time looking down into that water um, which very quickly uh, clouded over and became green and I watched and I watched and over two or three weeks the water started to clear and when it cleared there were water boatmen as if from nowhere. There were the first leaves coming up from the bottom with the mud. Of the, uh, the nymphia, there were the marginal plants, which very quickly became home to the damselflies, which seemed to come from nowhere, and this whole ecology which just evolved in this watery lens in front of me, and it was an alchemy that happened. And I remember very distinctly that sense of that six-by-four-foot place being a complete world in itself, a little utopia which provided me with all the intrigue and all the interest um, that any child could possibly want. And it was something that I realised was also something I could be part of because we had created that space and we tended it. And in the making of that pond, I think uh, I alighted upon my vocation um, as a garden maker. Uh, First of all, uh, a child that grew plants and then a child that wanted to put these plants together to combine them in a way that made places. So I just wanted to talk you through that little journey. This was a house that we moved to in 75, and it was just along the lane from the house with the pond. And we knew this house, Hill Cottage, uh, from the huge overgrown hedge which hung out into the lane, and the hole in the hedge 
through which uh, an old lady came out in the autumn with basketfuls of windfall apples, which she then put along everybody's doorsteps. And there was a single chimney with a tree growing out of the chimney. And Miss Joy was a bedraggled figure with handmade hats and handmade clothes and this sense of mystery around her. And eventually Miss Joy was overwhelmed and she had several strokes in the garden and eventually died. And my mother, who'd been brought up in vicarages, could not wait to get behind the hedge um, and see what was going on. Because the um, stories surrounding Miss Joy were quite fascinating. Um, There was one, for instance, from uh, one of our neighbours who had complained about the rat problem because Miss Joy used to just throw all her uh, excess food out into the yard where she had the chickens. And the neighbour had brought a rat, a dead rat, to Miss Joy and hung it by the tail and said, Miss Joy, you've really got to do something about the rat problem. And she'd looked at it for quite some time and said, it's not one of mine. (laughs) And um, when we moved there, we discovered that, sure enough, it was because... Mum fell in love with this house um, and uh, bought it, persuaded Dad. And inside we found uh, the akebia vine which Miss Joy had planted had got underneath the skirting boards and was wrapped around the furniture. There was a rat hole under every single door in the house. Um, The garden had pressed itself against the window, so there was this murky gloom inside. But when we started to clear this acre of land, we discovered underneath this wreckage of a garden um, this beautiful place that Miss Joy had made um, in the early 1900s and then had, over time, uh, it had overwhelmed her. She'd created somewhere that had been uh, planted from things that she'd grown from seed. Um, She was... uh, Out as a nurse in the First World War, she apparently brought seeds back and there were these pictures of her with young seedling trees standing by the front door. When we arrived, there was a huge oak that she'd brought back from Turkey which represented um, her own alchemy, her own um, version of creating a paradise. And she was a spinster and eventually was overwhelmed by this place, um, which we then had the chance of working into and discovering. And through discovering that garden, um, I was allowed to have uh, an opportunity to take my passion for garden making, which was already starting, I got first prize for this little one, um, to uh, clearing the garden down into the orchard. Um, We found this old border with the remains of some hemorrhicalis, some daylilies, and an old uh, peony, which was uh, still battling away underneath uh, the tall nettles and brambles. And I made my first border here. This is a border which I made sort of age 15 or 16. Um, I was very interested in colour at that point, um, so I had the border on the right, um, which was yellow and purple. My dad had the border on the left. Interestingly enough, that picture doesn't seem to show dad's border. (laughs) Um, We had quite a dialogue, the two of us. Dad was a painter. And um, we used to stand on this path in the evenings and discuss this place that was evolving and changing um, in a way that was um, a very wonderful uh, process of getting to know what it was to create a space and workshop it. Um, Dad was a teacher. Um, He taught me an enormous amount about how to look and how to be in a place. 
And at that point, I was very lucky to be uh, working with two very other good gardeners, a woman called Mrs. Pumphrey, who I gardened for at the weekends down in the village, and a lady across the road who was a naturalist who let me into her garden to look at it. And the garden really became somewhere that was my complete oasis. Um, I was a solitary child in this place and never lonely. Um, I never told my friends at school that I had this passion. Um, And my passion overwhelmed uh, my studies to the point that um, I decided to leave during my A-levels and go and study horticulture at Wisley. I'd been out to start to look at landscape beyond the confines of this garden. Quite early on, I was a great cyclist, and um, I went, we were brought up in the South Downs, um, on these cycles every summer's evening, out into landscape, and I learned to love landscape as being somewhere that um, showed you really about how to be outside. It was somewhere that um, was constantly changing, this rolling landscape, We'd cycle from a hill down into the cool hollow and feel the way the temperature changed. And with that, the ecology, the ferns in the hedgerows, as opposed to the gorse on the tops of the hills. And I learned to read landscape, and it's really become an absolute passion with me and informs the way that I work uh, today. I went to look at gardens within landscape as well on uh, many journeys that I started to make into Europe and then further overseas both to look at landscape and learn how how people actually dealt with it and coped with creating space in landscape that was somewhere that could be occupied as a place, an outside place that was a sanctuary. And, of course, I visited uh, the Alhambra uh, in Andalusia. Um, You go beyond the walls of the Alhambra, and very soon you're in dried-up not desertified, but uh, very dry Mediterranean scrub. And the water was channeled into this wonderful garden um, through the hill into a series of water features which move you through the space. The water never stops accompanying you. There is a huge water tank in one great big courtyard which was designed to cool the whole space. There are these fountains which give you this cool, wonderful sound of water and somehow get you to recalibrate how you feel about that Andalusian heat and sunshine, make you feel cool in the process. Um, There are rills which follow you through each of those courtyards. It's a constant companion with you, the water, a very brilliant device. And as you descend out through a nut grove, those rills are channeled into a handrail which you can dip your hand in as you walk down out through the garden under those nut trees. So you leave feeling completely refreshed. It's the most extraordinary place. You come out onto the street having felt like you're in a dream, and this is what gardens can do for you. I became very interested in the idea, having grown up in a garden which had overwhelmed the previous owner, um, of places which were um, gardened uh, against the odds, And when I first went to New York, I discovered the green gorilla gardens on the Lower East Side, many of which have gone now because they were in empty lots of land, which at that point was still derelict. Chain-link fences had been pulled away, and people had taken these little plots on, and they sometimes had tiny allotments which were just half the size of this stage. 
Um, but they were gardening them with absolute passion, doing what they wanted to do. People in high-rise buildings with no access to greenery were transforming these rubble patches into something miraculous. They were wonderful places. So I became very, very interested in this idea of the gorilla garden, of the fact that if you want to, you can put some seed in the ground. If you nurture it, it turns into something which rewards you. So I started to follow guerrilla gardening or opportunistic gardening. And when I came to move back to London, I started to look for all these places where these things were happening. These are these wonderful barges down by the Thames. I don't know if anybody knows them that have been gardened on their roofs. I then in the early 90s moved to a place called Bonington Square, um, which had been a series of squats that had been taken over by mostly art school students, actually, who then formed housing communities And they'd started to dig up the pavements, a couple of keen gardeners, and plant plants on the pavements. And it was right up my street. I managed to get a flat there. And um, this is just outside my flat. And some of the things which we started to plant, this was an Ipomea, a perennial Ipomea I brought back from one of those trips to southern Spain. We planted all the buildings. We festooned everything with greenery. And I made a little roof garden on the rooftop, which was five by six metres And mine was the only rooftop garden when I started there. And um, very quickly, the people next door to me and then the people next door to them started to make little outside spaces. So by the time I left after six years, there were seven or eight of these little roof gardens and a community of people, myself included, who could talk to each other across the roofs, whereas the roofs had been completely empty before in the evenings. Just maybe a little chair somebody going out on the odd, odd, warm evening. The garden made you feel like you could use these places. They became little utopias. And beneath them, there was a space where there were seven houses had been bombed in the war and pushed into their basements. And there was the proverbial uh, children's playground with one swing, quite a lot of dog crap, uh, one tree which somebody had planted, a, a juglands which you can just see there, And there was a filmmaker who lived on the square called Evan English who was between films and not working at the time. And he said, why don't we get together and try and stop this piece of ground being built on because we saw people sniffing around at developers. So we managed to get the last inner city grant, £26,000, and um, managed to transform this space into Bonington Square Gardens, um, which became a completely eclectic place. It was a community effort So although I was the main person behind driving the planting, we had lots of input from people who were living on the square who said, I want some palms, I want some plants from New Zealand, I want something that I can eat. And it's become somewhere now that has a complete heart, uh, has created a heart in the middle of this square. From this to that, the housing prices, not understandably, uh, have gone through the roof these little houses which were previously squats and were going to be pulled down and were saved by these squatters who made them into co-ops. They've now been sold on and they're selling for some ridiculous figure. Um, But there is this place where people can come out of their buildings and meet each other in neutral ground, in an environment which brings all the seasons into the centre of the city. I moved from there down to Peckham um, about... uh, 20 years ago now, um, to find my own piece of ground. I literally got pot-bound on that roof garden and wanted to put my own roots down. Um, And we found this piece of, uh, well, a wonderful garden, actually, uh, a long 120-foot site. 
Um, and I walked straight through the house when I found it, didn't really look at the house and just saw this piece of ground and thought, this is it, and looked around and noticed uh, the wreck that we were about to take on. Um, but that became an oasis. Um, it was somewhere that uh, I planted London out in this garden and invited nature in. It was very naturalistically planted. Um, and it was somewhere that you could see people who'd come off the busy Peckham Road using public transport or cycle or whatever. Friends of mine would come, they'd come through the house, and within minutes you saw them physically exhale when they came into the garden. And half an hour later, they were different people. And we were able to live in this place, um, affected by this garden, in an incredibly positive way. Um, and it really taught me about the power of gardens for uh, Oasis and how it is possible to create, even in relatively small spaces, somewhere that has um, a real sense of place that uh, allows you to feel uh, the sensuality of the world. I wanted to uh, keep on looking at landscape and slowly uh, the idea dawned on me that all these wonderful places that I'd found... Um, and felt passionate about and been taking photographs of should be turned into some sort of study. So I wrote a book called um, Spirit, which was specifically about sense of place, just taking snaps, uh, my own snaps, my own images of places I've visited, and then writing short passages about why they were special. This is Wiseman's Wood, or Wiseman's Wood, um, on Dartmouth, um, described in the old books as a clatter of boulders, on the hillside that had prevented farming, had prevented improvement. Um, and here, the twisted oaks had not been felled because they couldn't get the wood out. And the first time I went down here, it was a March morning before the leaves had come out. Um, and I thought I was there on my own. There was this absolute hush, just my friend and myself. And I stood amongst these boulders with this wonderful moss landscape, very slowly, I realized that there were several other people in this space, some people sitting amongst the rocks, some people just lurking in another corner, just taking in the atmosphere in the way that I was. There was a still, there was a hush in this place which had been created by this very powerful, magical sense of place that other people were going to, to be in, to be private and to be quiet and to be in touch with something that really felt like it had some gravity. I was very interested that there was a similar atmosphere in Saihoji, um, this garden in Kyoto, which is one of my favorite Japanese gardens. The Japanese are um, extraordinary masters of capturing sense of place and manipulating nature to make it feel like it's hardly been touched, whereas in fact it's absolutely been tended in every single direction. Um, when you're allowed into this garden eventually, you have to go through a ritual of chanting with the monks or writing over the prayers which they are chanting with a pen and ink. Um, only then, after the half an hour of doing that, are you allowed into the garden. And somehow you've been prepared for this space by going through this ritual of recalibrating yourself before you're allowed into the garden. And you look out and there are trees and a pond and a little stroll through them, and you think, well, this is a, it's a moss garden, and there's water and trees and shadow. And slowly you start to see that there, are, there isn't just one moss, there are 25 different mosses, which, as your eye recalibrates um, and you become attuned to this place, you see all the different wonderful textures within them. 
And you start to feel this place in a a, a much more holistic way. Um, If you listen hard, you can hear the sound of the road just beyond the garden fence. It's just a few acres, this garden. You can hear transistor radios and sirens. But all that is filtered out because of the magic of this place. So that what you hear is a carp breaking the surface of the water or the wind in the trees or the camellia blossom falling to the ground. It's somewhere that allows you to be somewhere more significant. The Japanese are masters at stylizing as well. And I've really come to love the way that landscapes can be distilled in a very uh, pure form, but also in in a very abstract way. Uh, This is Rio Anji, one of the most famous Japanese gardens, of course, where the mud wall that separates it from uh, the parkland beyond has actually become a national treasure in itself. The mud wall has um, oils in it that have come to the surface and are almost like a landscape in themselves if you allow your eyes uh, to uh, imagine those uh, foothills in the distance. And the Zen garden allows you to see the rocks that have been placed amongst it as a landscape in themselves. And what was particularly fascinating about this garden, I felt, was that I could feel the way that the monks had intended the power of those rocks to come through. You could feel how they'd felt the energy in them and helped the viewer to see that and to feel that too by the way that they were juxtaposed with each other, by the way that they were angled into the light, by the small amount of space that might have been left around them so that you could appreciate their form. It was a timeless space that connected you through several hundred years to the people that had actually created it and probably will continue to be working as long as it's being looked after into the future in the same sort of time frame. Tokyo, what an extraordinary place. Look at this little house on the right here. This was a man who was obsessed by bonsai, and he created his own utopia by actually surrounding the house with scaffolding planks and then planting over a 1,000 bonsai trees over the scaffolding. So inside there was... Uh, a little um, house that was surrounded by all these little walkways and you could go up onto the roof with him and he would show you these little trees, each which had their own little atmosphere, their own particular character, their own story that went with them. And this place had its own identity as a result. This is another wonderful place that I go to and visit in uh, the work that I'm part of in Hokkaido. It's a man called Mr. Uzumi who's taken on 20 acres of woodland over 25 years ago and manipulated the woodland very gently to recalibrate the forest floor. He strimmed away the sasa bamboo and allowed the vestigial seed bank in the soil to come through. He takes away certain certain plants by simply not allowing them to seed so that over time they don't proliferate and other plants amongst them that might have been swallowed up by them are allowed to proliferate instead. He creates his own little buildings. He's made these buildings, this man. He was a tailor. Um, And now he's created this place um, that has become his main home. And you're invited to be in these little shelters and to look out into this woodland. And when I went there for the first time, it was all I could do not to burst into tears because it was so extraordinary. We sat in this little wooden building, just the two of us, in complete silence with the water running just alongside and the birds coming down and just dipping in the water 
And I really felt like I'd found a paradise. It was a paradise that he created through a very gentle manipulation of this landscape and through placing the buildings within it at just the right point for the energy of that stream to provide the acoustic or for the light that fell on the water to do its thing at a certain time of day. I'm very lucky to be able to uh, work um, in Hokkaido and we've created a magical space there um, with uh, another landscape architect called Takano. And I was asked to work on this uh, site uh, by Takano who needed help uh, with uh, creating gardens. He was looking at the master plan for the site. Um, Hokkaido is in the very northernmost island of Japan, quite close to Russia. Um, I was invited there in the snowy winter um, to visit him. I didn't know, know, not, know, I didn't know what for at that point. I was ostensibly give a lecture. And over three days, he invited me into this snowy landscape first on um, a trek through the mountains on skis. And then on the second day, we went up in a hot air balloon to see the landscape. And then on the third day, after meeting his staff, who worked in, his, in a schoolhouse in the middle of apparently nowhere, a white wilderness, um, that evening he took me out uh, in the car with his business partner and three little bags which his wife had given him with something heavy in the bottom, little carrier bags. And we set off on this little track into the snow, uh, into the dark. And I thought at that point, well, maybe I'm never going to come back. He's just going to push me off into the ravine and I'll never be, never be seen again. And we headed out into the woodland for about half an hour walk and came to this little ravine where we went down the side of the hill and there was some steam coming out of the hill. And just on the side of the hill there was a tiny little onsen um, which him and some friends had made by damming a hot spring which came out of the hill. And at that point I realised what this was all about. We took everything off, we got into the water up to here, and inside the bag there was a can of Sapporo beer. Um, <laughs> we sat there with the Sapporo beer already uh, super chilled, um, just above the water. My hair froze because it was minus uh, th- uh, 25 degrees. Um, drinking the beer, very happily talking about the time that we were having together. Um, and uh, this space that he'd already uh, introduced me to, this, this forest that we were part of. And he started to tell me about um, Mr. Um, Hayashi, who had taken on this huge piece of land, um, which at that point was 250 hectares, and his plan to make it into an e- ecological forest. And it sounded like a wonderful idea. Would I be part of it, he, th- he said. And just as the, uh, he mentioned that, the moon came round the corner of the hill and landed on us, and I couldn't say anything but yes. Um, so we've been working on this project, which has as its remit um, a, a sustainability of a 1,000 years, um, which is a kind of rhetoric. Um, it doesn't, it's hard to know what that means, but what we've taken it to mean is that it's about education. It's about getting uh, your children involved, your children's children involved, We've got programs of replanting part of the forest. We've got programs of protecting the forest. Um, We've made ways into the forest uh, along woodland trails, which lead you out into open land that invites you then into the mountains. These were previously flat uh, fields, which had been um, made flat by agriculture. I recontoured them so that they started to feel like the foothills of the landscape, so that you found your way out into landscape very naturally, 
It's very interesting. Um, the Japanese have become very urbanized, and it was a fascinating thing to create this five-hectare space um, because it was always the children that ran into it that disappeared over these mounds, and the, the parents would run after them wondering where they'd gone. You'd then see the kids on the next mound and the parents running after them. Eventually, you'd see them settling down on the outskirts, and they'd go on a big trail through the forest and then come back, having enjoyed the landscape through... Um, a garden setting which we created to allow them to be part of it, allowed them to feel that this was a special place, somewhere that needed to be protected, a utopia of sorts. We created... Uh, yep, yep. Five minutes? One. Two minutes? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, we've created a, a landscape with a, a, a perennial garden which allows people to be part of a garden and in landscape. Um, and I, I might just finish there, actually. I'm going on to talk about Maggie's. I can talk about that later. Um, but gardens really are a place that uh, can allow you to be part of a landscape. They can allow you to uh, replace yourself in a certain time in the world. They can allow you to uh, revisit your thoughts. They can allow you to feel more sensual within a place. Um, and in so doing... Um, feel much more connected in the world and I think that is a kind of utopia. So thank you for sharing. Um, I'm going to um, start by quoting what Thomas More himself said in Utopia about gardens. They set great store by their gardens. In them they have vineyards, all manner of fruit, herbs and flowers, so pleasant, so, so well furnished and so finely kept that I never saw a thing more fruitful nor better trimmed in any place. Their study and diligence herein cometh not only of pleasure but also of certain strife and contention, that is, between street and street concerning the trimming, husbanding, and furnishing of their gardens, every man for his own part. And verily, you should not likely find in all the city anything that is more commodious, either for the profit of the citizens or for pleasure. And therefore, it may seem that the first founder of the city minded nothing so much as he did these gardens. So the Utopians' gardens combine pleasure and practical use, cooperation and friendly rivalry. And these are themes that emerged strongly when I was researching my book. My gardeners are not wealthy and rarely own their land. They were restricted in their capacity to create landscapes, but not in their vision. The combination of pleasure and use. Uh, the first English reference to the gardens of the ordinary people and working class only became a term used in, at the end of the 18th century uh, with the Industrial Revolution. So the, person, the first reference in gardens of ordinary people is in Thomas Tusser uh, in Elizabethan England with his rather plonking verse used, uh, used for, for those unfamiliar with le their letters. Um, and so I'm just going to... Um, 
So, uh, and rather unexpectedly and very unusually, he also refers to um, uh, women as gardeners. Uh, gardeners through, uh, garden writers through the ages seemed always to forget that women often, very often, gardens. So he writes, In March and in April, from morning to night, in sowing and setting, good housewives delight. To have in their garden or some other plot, to trim up their house and to furnish their plot. Um, and so this, this, and this, this combination of uh, furnishing your house and the, the purely utilitarian is, has, runs right through um, working class utopias. Um, the, uh, in the 19th century, there was a rather wonderful controversy went on, which is about cottage gardens. Were they um, really uh, very pretty uh, little utopias, or were they strictly, uh, strictly utilitarian? And um, two people engaged in the, uh, this, this argument. Um, one, well, actually, she didn't engage in the argument. She, uh, uh, Mary, Mary Russell Mitford wrote about uh, cottage gardens in, in the, at the beginning of the 19th century. And she talked about uh, hollyhocks, roses, honeysuckles, and a great apricot tree and that the garden was full of uh, common flowers such as tulips, pinks, larkspurs, etc. Um, and Tom Hood, the uh, poet, um, was absolutely infuriated by this. And he wrote a poem which started, Our village, that's to say not Miss Bitford's village, but Our village of Bullock Smithy. And he went on to paint a very different picture. And he talks about, as for hollyhocks at the cottage doors and honeysuckles and jasmines, you may go and whistle. But the tailor's front garden grows two cabbages, a a dock, a hapeth of penny royal, two dandelions and a thistle. Um, But in fact, however poor uh, gardeners were, uh, in my opinion, and um, I, I had garden histo- historians saying, oh no, the, the working class gardeners just had only, only utilitarian, only vegetables. But um, I, always, I felt that always they aimed also for at beauty if they could. And the cover of my book uh, was uh, a, a watercolour by uh, Miles Burkett Foster, which has a, a lady, uh, extremely poor lady, uh, ca- um, tending her cabbages. But it, behind her, uh, climbing roses are climbing up the walls of her tumble-down cottage. But an interesting thing happened in the uh, late uh, 19th century, which, w- uh, 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 which was um, Miss Lofty uh, records this. Uh, Miss Lofty wrote in a magazine, uh, uh, Social Twitters, Nothing is New. And she wrote, now, uh, this is about 1870, cottagers now try to fill their little plots with geraniums and calceolarias, which they are obliged to keep indoors at great inconvenience to themselves. Uh, meantime, my lady at the court is hunting the nursery gardens for London pride and, and the nodding columbines which her pensioners have discarded and thrown away. So the cottage garden became very fashionable but meanwhile, working-class gardeners were, were, look at, were beginning to adopt features uh, which had been part of uh, a very expensive, uh, very wealthy gardens. And uh, they do it in a wonderful way, so that um, uh, I have a, a quote. Uh, there was a, um, 
autobiography of somebody who lived in Hackney in the 80, who was born in 1880s, and he he wrote wrote of he wrote um, about the grotto in the backyard in Hackney, and he wrote a beloved Victorian garden ornament wedged between the brick WC and the coal box. And his father had built it of old bricks, chunks of clinker refuse, scallop shells and broken glass. It was not a good example of garden architecture, but it was one up on old Mr. Sayers down the road, who quite blatantly inserted in his grotto old chamber pots in which he grew creeping jenny. So so these working-class gardens had their own little little um, utopia. So going on to cooperation, there's long been a, a tradition of attempting to cooperate, and the medieval strip system and common pasturage of the feudal system in some ways was a matter of cooperation. And uh, so Thomas More himself actually fought against the enclosures and described uh, enclosure of, of common lands and described how sheep were eating men i.e. people were enclosing land in order to be able to have their their sheep so that they could make a lot of money out of wool. So uh, Moore was very much against this. He's one of the first anti-enclosure people. Um, The allotment system was developed as a a, a direct result of enclosures. And some people think that the idea was based on the old strip system and certainly the measurements used were the same, though I've never been able to, to verify that actually the, uh, the, it, uh, there is a direct co- a connection between the two. And allotment holders, of course, do cooperate with each other. The problem about some of the more idealistic land sch- uh, schemes is that the participants were not always experienced at working the land so Fergus O'Connor, who was the uh, leader of the Chartist movement, um, directed his followers away from direct uh, political activity, activity towards land colonies. And uh, the Chartist Cooperative Society had plots of two to four acres with members paying subscriptions on, um, for a lottery to uh, allocate. But the, they ran into all kinds of problems not least that uh, Fergus O'Connor went insane, but um, the soil was poor and they were inexperienced husbandmen. Um, only in one case did a Chartist um, a, a cooperative movement really succeed. As a very interesting example from the um, late, late 19th century, the Clausden Hill Free Communist and Cooperative Colony. This was outside Newcastle upon Tyne, um, and it was founded in 1895, and it was influenced by utopian ideas of William Morris and and the Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin. And it's again idealistic, but not always practical. And he was influenced um, with vineyards heated by local coal uh, so that they could grow uh, oranges, lemons, and bananas. And they built greenhouses, uh, but in fact, uh, they were, they, this failed because of conflicting um, political views. Though landowners tended to impose their visions of a utopia on their tenants, and so we have lots of wonderful examples from the 18th century 
including Blaise Hamlet just outside Bristol, where the villagers were expected to play the roles of model model, um, villagers, including dressing up at times. Um, A more philanthropic scheme was Henrietta Barnett's for Hampstead Garden Suburb. And she wrote, The larger gardens of the rich helping to keep their, the air pure and the sky view more liberal. The cottage gardens adding that cosy, generous element which ever follows the spade when affectionately and cunningly wielded as man's creation. She was wonderfully idealistic. But in the, inve- in the event, um, Hampstead Garden suburb actually became a mi- middle-class enclave but she had an important influence on the Garden City movement and the cottage estates of the London County Council in between the wars. Now moving finally to rivalry. And this seems to have been a fundamental part of man's nature. And horticultural excellence is hard fought. Industrialists recognised this in the 18th century when their sites were not in cities, nor even in villages, they often had sites, very isolated sites. So, for instance, um, so they had to get good workforce and incentives were necessary. So they offered housing, but also gardens and allotments and horticultural societies and competitions. For instance, there was a Pennine community way up in the the Pennines, uh, b- between uh, Westmoreland and um, County Durham at Nent Head. And uh, they, um, uh, the, it was run by uh, the Quaker London Lead Society, uh, Company in, um, in the early 19th century. And they, they had, uh, for the best two cultivated gardens at Nent Head, prizes were offered of ten and six Uh, uh, and the entire community from the manager to the boys who attended the mine uh, ponies competed in the annual shows for fruit, flowers and vegetables in the 19th century uh, flower shows had become an important part of the social scene both in the countryside and in, in, in cities and in London they were encouraged by philanthropists and clergymen uh, because they were an excellent way of diverting men's attentions from the pub and the gin palace. And uh, there was one curate in Bloomsbury, which was then in a very impoverished part of London, and uh, and he founded annual flower shows in July, and they proved incredibly popular. And one of the fascinating details about some of the prize winners is that they created miniature utopias, So a poor army tailor um, is recorded transforming an old fish basket into a a small garden of annuals edged with stone crop. And another created a little front garden of a a villa, Bloom Grove, with flowers of every description, including verbenas, stocks, fuchsias, uh, mostly in bloom. And alongside these uh, general shows, were others of a rather different hue. They were specialising in certain kinds of flowers. And these were known as florist shows. Um, Florists at this time, uh, right up uh, at this time, were not um, experts at cut flowers or wedding arrangements. They were were enthusiasts of particular grown flowers, pot-grown flowers. 
And they began in the, in the, in the 16th century with exotics from the Ottoman Empire, um, so auriculas, tulips, carnations, later joined by uh, pansies, pinks, and chrysanthemums. And the, um, and the original florists were, gen- were very much gentlemen, but by uh, the 18th century, they become very much a work- uh, um, working-class uh, uh, arena, very craft-based uh, in, cert- uh, in certain parts of the country. And weavers and miners, who in particular, were very, uh, got, um, became very adept uh, at uh, winning these shows. And they were highly competitive and there were wonderful arguments, which I won't go into, but are very amusing insults being heaped. I mean, Donald Trump and his um, colleagues have got nothing on the florists of the, of the Islington Chrysanthemum Society. Um, by the 1870s, the florists were on the decline uh, because football and the music hall were taking their attentions along, I'm sure, all the time by the, uh, by the local pub. Um, but local shows are still great sources of competition as well as being great social events. I found my book quite difficult to end because I didn't really know uh, what, the, what is the working class today. Um, but I did realise that gardening utopias are still very important you know, for people who haven't got big gardens and haven't got plenty of land. And so I, um, and there are people who long to have um, garden, who long to have gardens. They have allotments, but they also have community gardens. Um, and Dan mentioned gorilla gardens, and there's a wonderful garden, uh, edible uh, uh, bus stop in Brixton, which was created um, by a gorilla gardeners. And the, that is a, that is a min- little miniature utopia in the most extraordinary place. And um, there is a, 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 a communal garden in Islington um, called the Coolpepper Garden. And Coolpepper, it, it's rather interesting that it's named after Coolpepper because he was a 17th century um, herbalist, a radical apothecary, who did so much to provide information on healing herbs. Uh, he, he, his books were written in English whereas uh, most doctors tried to write their books in, it, uh, in Latin so that people couldn't, couldn't easily, uh, ordinary um, readers couldn't find it easy. Um, and the, organ- uh, the garden, at, called, uh, the Islington Garden, is an organic garden, and it comprises a lawn, ponds, rose pergolas, ornamental beds, vegetable plots, and an area given over to wildlife. And there are 50 plots, including two raised beds for disabled gardeners. And, these, and there are small gardener, gardens for community groups, children, and for people living nearby who do not have gardens. And I reckon that, um, that Sir Thomas More would have thought that this garden was a true utopia. Thank you very much. Who you are, and then ask your, your question. So, who would like to ask the first question? 
Yes, this is a question for Dan Pearson. You were just about to show us your picture of Maggie's um, when you had to stop. Uh, could you tell us what you were about to say about Maggie's? <laughs> it's an album which I have a lot of interest in. Thanks very much. I was really intrigued. I think they're excellent uh, presentations. But one of the themes that came over to me that maybe could be explored a little bit further is the question about the politics of gardening. Because I love the concept of guerrilla gardening, which sort of lies some parallels with knit bombing and other things in fairly relatively often regarded sort of fairly domesticated activities. And um, I wondered, um, particularly with, the, with reference to class divisions and other things, whether they, there was a capitalist garden you know, because we're talking about this transition, as distinct from maybe a socialist garden, you know, just broadening the discussion a little wider. Uh, my question is for everybody. Um, do you think that um, all true gardeners, um, and I know you could talk about what that means, but do you think that all true gardeners are romantics at heart? Lovely quick question. So are all gardeners romantics at heart? the politics of gardens, you can have capitalist and socialist gardens, and finally can then finish off his uh, remarks about the So, Annie, would you like to start? Or would you like to start? I was hoping it's going to be Dan. I think, um, <laughs> I think the only one that um, I feel in any way um, able to uh, attempt to answer is the one about whether all gardens are romantics. Um, I think there is certainly some of that in, in most gardeners because I think what we're trying to do is to create a dream in a curious way. And the wonderful thing about making a garden is that it doesn't actually have to conform to anybody else's dream. The whole point of making a garden is that it is our idea of beauty and we can make perhaps the sort of world we wish to be lived in. We can make a cloak around us to perhaps blot out a world that is increasingly not what we wish to live in. I was reminded about that when I went to the Shirt the Royal Academy, uh, and I don't know how many of you have seen that, but it was a, a review of painting from Monet to Matisse, and it ended in this remarkable bringing together of a triptych that I had never seen um, in its entirety before. And standing there, it was one of those sort of rooms that and images, the longer you gave it, the better it got. I very much got the sense of Monet, who stayed on at Giovanni with the Germans advancing, blotting out all those horrors that were going on by this circular painting. He didn't even go down to the pond anymore. He was painting from memory. And here he was making this garden around him that actually enclosed and, and, and shut out the, the awful things. Um, Personally, I'm definitely of, of a romantic nature. I always think things are going to get better the next year. This is something that's built into all the gardens. That's why they go on. The next year is always going to be more brilliant than the present. And also, I have a tremendously good ability to see what I want to see in my own garden. So if the weeds are growing uh, rather heavily uh, up, upon the path, I won't look at the weeds. I will just actually fix my eyes on the magnolia beyond. Uh, and I think this, again, is quite an important thing to have as a gardener, the ability to see what you want to see and to let the place give you happiness. It has the capacity, I think, if we are lucky enough to have anywhere where we can garden, to give us more 
delight, pleasure, joy, solace, all those things than anything else that we're able to do. We can't all sculpt, we can't all paint, we can't all knock off a brilliant sonata, but it is in most of us to be able to turn a bit of concrete into something that gives delight. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> Margaret, do you want to take up the politics and class divisions? <laughs> um, I was, I've just been trying to think about that because the, the, the grand old... Um, uh, the granddad of, of, of uh, cooperative um, schemes was the diggers in the, in the 17th century uh, who, who um, took over parts of uh, uh, Surrey, St. George, St. George's Common, went outside Weybridge and tried to create a, a, an ideal community. They were hounded by um, legal, uh, by, law, by law, and but also they weren't particularly successful um, because they weren't um, naturally guard, uh, husbandmen rather than gardeners. But I, I, ha- I, I have a feeling that um, gardening is rather, rather more left wing than right wing. I think <laughs> I can't think of a capitalist garden. Um, I suppose that I. Um, I th- Even though you work for the National Trust. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was begun by. Three. I don't mean the National Trust itself, but the gardens they took oh, over. Oh yes, there. I suppose. Well, I, the money for, for for creating them, I suppose, was was capitalist. Mm. But I don't think the vision was. I would also say, actually, I think at the moment we might be in a time when there are more extraordinary amounts of money being poured into gardens, you know, that people have sort of uh, freshly decided that this is what, you know, um, everybody must have, is a garden. And we have a raft of garden designers in this country now, such as we've never had before. Uh, And that wouldn't have happened unless there was a lot of money out there that people were willing to pay them to make these places. So I think there is a sort of... um, I would would call those quite quite capitalist gardens in the sense that we are not generally invited to go and visit them. Um, (laughs) They are uh, behind locked doors, most of them. Um, And, um, um, you know, this is wonderful because at some stage, of course, you know, we might be able to get a peek at what's been going on there. And from the pictures that some, uh, you know, sort of magazines show, they are extraordinarily beautiful places. So I would call them still capitalist gardens. I don't know, Dan, whether that's being offensive. No, no, I, I think that's, that's where um, I, I, I agree completely. I think that, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons we try in our practice to split our work between uh, the public realm uh, where you could argue there are socialist spaces because it's about access, free access to all and, uh, and private work and we like it because it allows us to experiment uh, with ideas where uh, a client might have the money and ambition to do something um, even though that garden is going to be private and maybe only accessible to a few people um, it allows us then to give uh, the public realm something that has been formed by the work that we've been doing privately. So I, I do see those two sides working very graphically, and we wouldn't want to be drawn um, just into uh, the world of uh, private gardens, which is where I think, um, as Anna was saying, there's a huge amount of money being spent at the moment. Um, although private gardens can be uh, tiny, very cheaply funded little spaces. I planted up a friend's garden yesterday for him, for 500 quid that he'd spent, uh, saved, um, and we managed to do something really wonderful in a tiny front garden um, in Hackney. 
And um, he's going to absolutely love that. And during the time that we planted the garden up, just one afternoon, uh, we had three local people coming who we'd never met before who just stood on the garden <laughs> fence and said, what are you doing? And um, we were planting a garden. So in a way, it became a very egalitarian thing, even though it was a, private, a very private little space. And Matt, would you like a couple of minutes to explain a bit more about Maggie's? Maggie's, just quickly, yes, I'm sorry I ran over. Um, the uh, Maggie's centres are uh, a series of centres which were created by uh, Maggie Keswick, um, who was uh, diagnosed with cancer, and she was uh, a landscape architect, and, sur- and she had a lot of friends who were architects. Um, and she decided that she'd do something positive with her diagnosis and uh, set up a trust, the Maggie's uh, Centres, um, as a means of being able to communicate around the issue of cancer. And the idea of the centres is that they are um, buildings which are designed by signature architects um, that have very often in association with them garden spaces. And they're always linked to a cancer unit of a hospital, so they're very close to a hospital. Um, the centre which we did in Charing Cross is on the busy Fulham Palace Road, sandwiched between um, one of the busiest roads I know uh, and the consultant car park and the funeral directors. Um, it's a wonderful little gem if you haven't been to see it. Um, you, anybody can go in. Um, it's been designed by Rich Roger Stoke Harbour, a very wonderful building which is like an envelope which invites you into it very gradually but every single room looks out onto vegetation and the Maggie's um, people um, at the top were absolutely clear about vegetation being part of the experience of this centre and the people that I've met and worked with who've been using the centre who've been diagnosed with cancer themselves or a relative or a friend and have gone there to find out more about it have said to me on more than one occasion um, that the centres are wonderful places because they feel like a home um, but the gardens allow them to feel um, like they're, uh, it, the gardens are about life, they're not about death they're something that's continually being uh, regenerating itself um, it's continually showing you something new, it's continually moving forward um, and for that reason, I think that the Garden um, Building Association uh, with Maggie's is a very brilliant thing to have done, and I'm thoroughly behind those centres. I'd like to vouch for that. I mean, you know, having been through that particular mill, I, I remember um, a couple of days, you know, after that period where you don't care much whether you live or die, I crawled out onto a little patch of grass, and a nurse came out and said, What should you do? What should you do? Get back to you. Get back. I said, I have to be here. I have to be here. And, you know, it was that concept that I was actually sitting on something that was alive. It was the only green thing I could see in this ghastly place. I had to get there. I'd already abandoned the morphine, which makes you wretch. They don't tell you that. And actually, I was getting through on the smell of sweet peas. My husband brought me in every day a fresh bunch And I just buried my nose in that and just thought, look, there is a reason to go on. This smell is fantastic. I've got to actually get some more of that smell. And it was the same with the grass. So this business of actually being close to stuff that is alive is so, so important. It's great, great work. Mm. Great sentence. We've got time just for... Now they're all coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The lady up there, please. Thank you. A corollary to the question about politics, which also follows your opening remarks when there was a subcurrent of response to the Heatherwick Bridge project, 
Um, that I see as a conflicting political issue. Is there a further comment any of you could make on that? And um, could you make a comment about the future of publicly run gardens and parks, which are showing the stress of huge cutbacks and local authorities relinquishing their responsibilities for them to local groups of friends and volunteers? And was one last question there? Thank you. Um, I'm lucky enough to live between the Edible Bus Stop and Bonnington Gardens, which are both absolutely beautiful spaces. And I didn't know you started it, Dan, so thanks for starting Bonnington. Um, I've done a little bit of guerrilla gardening, very briefly, on a much smaller scale. I've planted a single apple tree to stop a building being built on a site. And this morning, there's 30 local residents trying to stop trees being launched on that same site. And as that lady mentioned over there, that site is the Garden Bridge. Um, local residents don't want it, and it blocks some of the best views in London, and there's an existing public park there. Um, so my question is to all of the panel, if you were given £10 million to make London greener and more public, and like some of those beautiful spaces like the Hackney Grotto, how would you spend it? We have just two minutes for the answers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should warn you. Um, and uh, who would like to take these answers... And I do know that uh, Dan would rather not answer questions on the garden project. The I'd rather not answer questions about the politics of it, yeah. um, because I think it's become an enormous hot potato. I can talk to people afterwards about it, but not in this forum. Um, I think it is, has the potential to be an extraordinary garden um, and an extraordinary place. Um, and, uh, and I know that gardens can provide an enormous amount of positive um, energy for people so um, I'm behind it because I've been asked to do the garden and, um, and I'm trying to do my very best on that front. And the more general question about publicly run gardens and the diminishing amount of money in many cases for it, would either of you or Margaret or Anna like to take that question? Well I'd just quickly like to say if I had the £10 million I'd give it to Q. Q is at the basis of everything else that happens. That is where the research goes on. That is where, you know, the Botanic Garden Network is run from. They are the only people that if you are, you know, some guy out in Dominica, you know, with a sort of raft of people wanting to build over this little pocket of, you know, place where the children play and people picnic, he goes to queue for help. Why, why are we in this ridiculous situation where the environment is talked about daily and yet Q is starved of funds? It's nonsense. Well, I was just trying to think of an idea. And one of the things that I would really like to do is to undo all those, gar- uh, all those paved-over gardens and astroturf so that we have wildlife <laughs> as well as gardens. Now, um, we, have to, we have to end, end there, but before we, before we end, I just, um, someone said to me on the way in, why are you having something on gardening in the London School of Economics and Political Science? Well, now you can see why even gardening is very political. But um, I just want to remind you that there are more literary festival events for the rest of the day here, as there have been all week, and that the latest books of these three wonderful authors are on sale upstairs, and they will be signing them after the event. But if you could please join me in thanking Anna Pivord, Dan Pearson and Margaret Wills for a wonderful, inspiring discussion.